You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Good morning. How are y'all doing? Good. Good. Well, welcome to Providence Community Church. We are grateful that you chose to gather with us this Sunday. Um, My name is Ty Gaston, for those of you that don't know me. um, And I serve as the Director of Family and Discipleship Ministries here at Providence. And... um, it's just, it's a wonderful thing to be here. It, since we've been back, it's, it's one of the greatest things that I'm reminded of as I look out into the, into the crowd to see all the familiar faces and some that I don't recognize as well. I'm just reminded of what a gift uh, that the church is to us, that God has given us. And I'm thankful that you're here, thankful that you get to be a part of, uh, of, you know, of worshiping alongside us. And it's a, it's a wonderful thing. I'm, uh, my heart is moved when I, when I come out here and see you guys. So, um, well, just as a reminder, as we get back to normal gatherings, uh, there's just a few things that we want to remind you guys of, uh, some of the measures that we're taking to make sure this is a safe uh, place for everyone to be. Um, this is a reminder to keep proper social distancing at all times for right now. Uh, we are, uh, some of us are in different places, some of us a little more, uh, a little more cautious than others, uh, but don't just assume that everybody is like you. Uh, so make sure that you love your neighbor well by respecting whatever guidelines there are. For me, what I, what I tend to do if somebody's walking close, I just say, hey, can I shake your hand? Because uh, for me, I, I'm, not, I'm not as concerned, so I simply just ask if other people are. That's a good way to, to love your neighbor well. Um, only three people in the restroom at a time, so make sure that, you're, uh, that you count before you go in. And then also, um, if you're a mom in the room, uh, we do have a separate mom room. Our current one is closed. Uh, we just want to make sure that we create a space where you can, be, um, you can sit in there free from worry and free from concern. Uh, well, if you're new here um, or if this is your first time, this is, uh, we are a church surrounded by a single um, and compelling vision, and that is to make the gospel unignorable in our city. And it's to that end that we, may, that we preach from the Bible every single week because we believe it's been given to us so that we may know, worship, and obey Jesus. And right now, we're currently in a series titled Consider Jesus, where we've been turning our eyes towards the person and work of Christ during this time of uncertainty. Uh, this passage we'll be hearing from this morning, we found in chapter, uh, Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. If you have a Bible with you, uh, I encourage you to turn there with me. If you do not, there should be one located in one of the seats in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible that you can call your own, uh, we'd love to be able to gift you with uh, God's word so that you may be able to um, dwell on it and, uh, and uh, learn from it daily. Again, we're going to be reading from Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. Once you arrive there, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Luke chapter 24, verse Uh, verses 13 through 35 says this. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them said, named Cleopas, Answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was, he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. 
They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find the body, they came back saying that they had, they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see. And they said to him, and he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his, into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the, scripture, all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if they were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went, into, he went in to stay with them, and when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose the same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Glad you guys are here, like Ty said. Um, obviously, excited to be able to get together again and gather as the church. Uh, my name is Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at Providence. And so, uh, hopefully, if it is your first time here, you can just let us know that you were here in some way. It's a little bit different. Usually, we would say uh, there's some easy ways that you could do that, but we've got a whole lot more humps uh, to jump over and obstacles in the way for you to try and figure, let us know that you were here. But uh, there should be some connect cards and stuff if you want to just let us know that you made it. Uh, quickly, uh, just uh, a quick note. Julie is working alongside all of her coordinators to try uh, and prayerfully consider a plan for what we're going to do with children's ministry in the month of June. And so I don't have a hard and fast date on that. I just wanted to let you know uh, they've been calling and working with other churches and trying to figure out the best way in order for us in the month of June at some point to start slowly phasing in, opening up our children's ministry again. So just kind of keep your ear low to the ground on that, and uh, hopefully we'll have something in the upcoming weeks to give you more information. Uh, like Ty said, we've been working through a series called Consider Jesus that we started when the quarantine began, and we've been looking at a few particular interactions in the life of Jesus, and really we're trying to ask ourselves just a couple of questions about these interactions that Jesus has, and since Easter, these interactions that Jesus has after the resurrection. The first one is, what does this interaction tell me about the Lord Jesus? What does it tell me about the kind of king that he is, the kind of lord that he is, the kind of uh, savior that he is, the kind of friend that he is, that Christ actually calls us his friends? And then secondarily, what does it mean for my life? What does that mean for me if Jesus is this way? And so this morning, we're going to be unpacking a story uh, about a couple of disciples, uh, one of them that's named, one of them that is not, that are journeying on the way from Jerusalem to a town called Emmaus uh, after the resurrection of Jesus as they're, they're on their way out. Uh, and they're met by this inquisitive man on the road. And it just so happens, we tied to shred the text, that they don't know they're entertaining Christ the entire journey along the way. It's one of my favorite stories post-resurrection uh, because of just this interesting way in which Jesus engages uh, with these disciples. A couple things before I pray and just kind of ask the Spirit to be with us this morning. Um, I really only have two major points. One of these points is I want to make is going to be one that carries throughout every single story we've already talked about. 
but the other one is going to be unique to this story. And so I just want to kind of have you perk your ears up. My, my prayer is that there will be a, uh, in similar way as the disciples said, did our hearts not burn within us as he opened to us the scriptures. My prayer is that you would have a hunger and a passion for the Bible uh, whenever we leave out this morning. Just a, a new burning in your heart to read the scriptures. So if you will, bow your heads. Let me pray for us. Let's, let's ask the Spirit to, to use the word to speak to our hearts. Father, thank you. Uh, thanks, first of all, Lord, that we get to gather again. And for those of our friends and our spiritual family that are at home, we just ask that you would unite them together with us. Thank you for your hand of protection you've had on our church and on our community, and we just ask you to continue that, Lord. That you'd protect us from sickness and from fear and anxiety. And Father, that you would help us to be wise and to be discerning. Holy Spirit, we just ask for your presence among us this morning. We know that you are here, so we just ask, would you open the eyes of our hearts to, to sense you, to experience you, to uh, submit to your actions, that you're, whether you're convicting or comforting, encouraging or exhorting, God, help us to submit to your work. And as we read your word, God, give us a passion for the Bible. Forgive us where we have taken it for granted, and give us all over again a renewed hunger to dive into it for our daily bread. We love you, and we ask these things in Jesus' good name. Amen. Okay, so the first point that I want to make is one that I've made. I don't know if you guys have caught this yet, but every single story we've gone through has started with the same point, maybe with just a slight variation. This morning's point is Jesus goes out of his way to meet us on the road of life. So you can go back and think through each and every story we've gone through, and no matter what the disciple that Jesus is engaging, or the disciples, plural, that Jesus is engaging with, he's meeting them in their time of need, individually. Whether it's Peter, or John, or Mary Magdalene, or Thomas, Jesus meets us in our time of greatest need. That's true here with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And the road to Emmaus is poetic and also evidently historically true. It's really easy to find crossovers between the, these disciples and our own lives. I could just jump through a few things that the, the Bible records these disciples are experiencing. The first one, it says that they looked sad. So if you've ever been sad, you can find some crossover here, right? Like they are, they are sad because of what happened to Jesus in Jerusalem, and they have yet to see the risen Christ yet. So they've heard stories, but they haven't met Jesus. These disciples are sad. Number two, they had hoped that Jesus was the Messiah. That's what they tell this guy on the road, meaning that they had hope deferred. We wish that Jesus was the Messiah, but Jesus is now dead. So they had hoped, but now hope had been taken away. So they had lost their hope. And then lastly, uh, they're perplexed. They're confused about the woman's testimony. The, remember Mary and Joanna and some of the women come and they say, uh, we've, we saw the Lord Jesus, he's risen. And they went to the tomb and they didn't see Jesus' body, but it says they didn't see the Lord Jesus either and they're confused about it. So there's all of these emotional um, categories that we can kind of store these disciples underneath, whether it's sad or whether it's perplexed or whether it's confused or whether it's hope deferred, right? They're discouraged. All of these things these disciples are feeling. And in many ways, this is the road of life that all of us are on. If you've ever felt brokenhearted or purposeless or experienced hope deferred, like the Proverbs actually say, hope deferred makes the heart sick. If you've ever really hoped for something and then had that, like, pulled the rug pulled out from under you, it'll make your heart sick. 
If you've ever become so confused with life, you're not sure what's true anymore. (laughs) Hopefully that one lands for some of us, I guess, in this time. You're not sure what's true anymore, so you feel so confused about what life is meant to actually be like. And yet each and every time what we notice, not only in this road, the road to Emmaus story, but in every single engagement that Jesus has with the disciples, have you recognized Jesus' tender and particular care that he shows to each disciple individually? He meets them where they're at, and Jesus reveals himself as Lord to each of them, but in all of these unique ways. For Thomas, it's through his doubt. For Mary Magdalene, it's in, it's, it's in her weeping. For these disciples, it's in their perplexed confusion. For Peter, it's in his guilt and shame. But Jesus meets each and every one of them individually, revealing himself as a gracious Lord. So that's the first point, and it's one that has carried through the entire series. Now, this next one is one that I think is unique to this story. And I'd like to just read a little bit about Jesus' response to these guys, and then I'll, I'll make the point that I think is unique to this story. So to catch you up, These guys are on their way on a seven-mile journey. Matt Chandler points something out here, which I love. He says, if you don't believe that Jesus was really crucified, or or, I'm sorry, if you don't believe that Jesus really rose from the dead, how do they see him here on a seven-mile journey after that crucifixion, right? It's like this guy, no one who's been crucified and just kind of swooned on the cross could make a seven-mile walk to Emmaus. That's one of the, the really cool parts about the story is Jesus is just having a quick, you know, 5K with these disciples after crucifixion, right? So he's risen. So these disciples are walking on the road to Emmaus. They're unnamed at this point. And then Jesus shows up, and it says that they do not recognize him. Now, I don't know if you guys have caught this theme. Every single one of the disciple stories includes the fact that they don't recognize him at first. Now, if you haven't picked up on that, what does that look like? It looks like every single conversion story that has been since the history of time that we are blind, but now we see. There has to be a a moment where we see Jesus for who he really is, that he's no longer just a story or a mythical person, but he's Lord. My Lord and my God is what Thomas says. Every single story has been like this so far. This one is no different. They don't recognize him as Jesus. My favorite part about this is how unassuming Jesus is. He shows up and they're talking and he says, what are you guys talking about? It's so funny. Like, you know, if you, you think about this, it's like, why wouldn't Jesus just go, hey, I know what you guys are talking about and I have all the answers. Doesn't do that. He says, what are you guys talking about? Well, we're talking about, if you, if, are you a visitor to Jerusalem? You don't know what's happening. And they start running down. You know, they think they're informing him. And then the tables are going to turn very quickly. He's going to start informing them on what they don't know. So let's start in verse 17. It says, he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. One of them named Cleopas answered him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem? You don't even know the things that happened there in these days. I love Jesus. He doesn't say, no, I know, very intimately. (laughs) He says, what things? Like, what happened? Tell me. Jesus regularly does this with his disciples, like with Peter and the the 12. Remember when he says, "Uh, who do people say that I am? And they go through it. This is what they say. Who do you say that I am? He knows the heart of Peter. He knows the hearts of the disciples. He knows which ones truly believe him as Savior and which ones do not. And yet he still asks them because he wants to draw this out of them. He does the same with these disciples. What things? And in verse 19, they say, they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who is a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death, crucified him. We hoped he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened, and moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. When they didn't find his body, they came back saying this to us, that they'd seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. 
Some of those who were with us went to the tomb, and they found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. So they don't say that they believed. They say the women said this. It was true, but we didn't see him. So once again, you get these guys not believing. The gals. Verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? This is the key verse, if, you're, if you do underline in your Bible. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. First of all, I don't sense that this is an intense rebuke from Jesus, although he would have been merited if he did give them an intense rebuke. I sense a mourning in Jesus. And the mourning is centered around the fact that these disciples don't know the scriptures well enough to see all of the lines that draw from Old Testament directly to him. And so they're perplexed about things that they have no business being perplexed about. And he mourns this. They're confused about things they have no business being confused about. You guys remember the interactions with the Pharisees when the Pharisees are questioning Jesus? And he continues to ask them, like, are you teachers of the law and you don't know these things? And, you know, that's obviously offensive to them because they know the Bible very well. But he has this one line that he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life. But you refuse to come to me of whom the scriptures testify. He says, basically, you've missed the point of the Bible. And this brings me to... The point that I think is unique in this story, unlike all the others, and that is that Jesus believed, trusted, and embodied the Scripture. And we ought also to trust and believe and embody what Christ has called us to be. There's a love for the Scripture that Jesus has that I think is, should be at the top of why you trust the Bible. Jesus clearly lived his life in such a way that he believed the Bible was not just something to be referred to in his sermons, but that it was the very basis for his existence and what he was to do on the earth. Now, Jesus has eternal existence as the God-man, but for us, it's the very foundation upon which we stand. Jesus is called the living word, and yet Jesus constantly refers to the written word over and over to bring validity to the things that he's saying. These things coexist in such a way that it's hard to really understand Jesus' ministry unless you understand the Bible. In fact, it's totally, it's, it's not only odd, it's craziness unless you understand the Bible. And this is why Jesus is regularly having to defend himself with the word with even his own disciples. They're saying, why are you doing this this way? And he'll continue to point back to the scriptures. And I think that this interaction with the disciples is so timely for us. You know, one of the greatest tragedies that I've seen in the midst of, uh, and it's really just been highlighted in the midst of the pandemic that we're experiencing. I think it's been true for a while now, but man, I've really noticed that. I don't know if you guys have. And that is the erosion of our societal institutions and trust that we have in them. Like, it's just very clear to me that our societal institutions, no one looks there anymore for solidity. No one believes or trusts that they can go there anymore for any sort of truth, and that's heartbreaking to me. Um, like we're all asking the question, where can we look to to find trustworthy information? Where can we look to in order to find help or care in times of trouble? Uh, where can we look to in order to gain knowledge or training about the ways of life, or even what life is and what we should be doing? And um, where can we look to to make sure that our children are going to be safe? You know, these are all basic questions that we we can't even all agree on anymore. 
It used to be, you know, very simple to say, you know, you, you could trust, like, I think all of us knew at some level it's like almost a, a joke, right? Like government is corrupt, ha, ha, ha. And, and, but you ultimately knew that at some level you could trust the government to do certain things. And I think I look like right now, whether it's social media or whether it's just interpersonal conversations, I don't know anyone that says, yeah, you could trust the government. You can run there. Or you could trust universities. It used to be, you know, university was this great opportunity to gain knowledge and, you know, to find things that are true and to study. And that's not even true anymore. You could trust media because they'll be able to tell you what's going on in places that you can't physically be. You can trust denominations. You could trust churches. You could trust schools. You could trust community clubs. And all of these places have really just become institutions that we're deeply skeptical of and maybe even don't really care about that much anymore. And that's tragic. I mourn it because... I do believe that there's a vision of God's kingdom that includes the sacredness of honest and venerable institutional authorities. It's why, even in the New Testament, God says that we ought to honor uh, the emperor, right? (laughs) Or that we should honor the government, is that God gives them the sword for good, and yet I mourn it because we don't even do that anymore. But I have found one hope in the midst of this that I want to present to you. When all institutions are struggling to find footing, my prayer is that God will do what he's done many times, which is to remind his people that the Bible is a trustworthy and foundational anchor to each and every human life. And that the Bible is really the bedrock for all of these other institutions to have any semblance of footing or success in trustworthiness. There's a story particularly in the book of 2 Kings chapter 22. I don't know if, you've, if you're familiar with this guy, but his name is Josiah and he's a king. Now, Josiah is a really interesting character because Josiah becomes the king at eight years old. Could you guys imagine this? Do you, if you even have an eight-year-old, you know how scary this could be, right? He, his dad dies early. He was a wicked king, his father was, and Josiah is the heir to the throne. And he, Think about an eight-year-old for the first time. Like it sounds like a Hollywood script for a movie, right? Kid president or something. He sits down on the throne, and Josiah begins to reign and rule over all of Judah, um, Here's the crazy thing is everything that you would expect about that storyline, like it would go badly, the opposite is what the Bible actually records. He's an honorable and good king, and it says that he does not walk in the ways of his father, but he walks in the ways of his father, King David, and that he's a great king. Like there's a revival that breaks out in all of Judah that he actually begins to follow the Lord. Now, what I find really interesting is after it already states all of this, it states that Josiah was a good king and he walked in the ways of the Lord, then it says... That at one day, Josiah sends some of his people, his secretary, to go and basically to maintenance the temple. He says, go to God's house, and I want you to start cleaning up. So they hadn't done a lot of cleaning. The janitorial work has been very poor, because here's why. A lot of people didn't care about going to the temple anyway, and the country had been in deep decline in any kind of spiritual sense. And so he sends them in there, and his secretary comes back and says, hey, uh, Josiah, when we were cleaning in one of the closets, we found something. We found the Bible. They found the Old Testament. They found the scriptures. They found the books of Moses, right? Genesis through Deuteronomy. They had found the books of the law. And he begins to read these books in the ears of the king. And King Josiah, at this point, was 22 years old or 23 years old. And he just tears his kingly robes in weeping and says, Go and inquire of the prophets to inquire of God. What are we to do? We have done an awful thing. 
Now, there's so many things that I, I read that story and I think, what in the world's going on? One of them is, how did this guy, apart from the help of God himself, ever walk in any righteous ways when they had lost the Bible in the church? Like, they didn't even have it. And this guy's still being obedient in some ways, which is totally the grace of God. But secondarily, his response to when he realizes they had lost the Bible, I'm not sure that many of us would respond to that way if we recognized it. And that's tragic, isn't it? He just is devastated. He's ruined by it. But then the biggest question that it always begs to me is, how in the world did they lose the Bible in the temple? Can we agree that's a little squirrely? Right? It's like the one place that you shouldn't lose the Bible. It's like, that's, like for instance, here, we have, all, we have Bibles underneath every single chair, right? And we say, hey, if you don't own a Bible, you can take that. And what we do is we, re, we rebuy them all the time, right? We put them in there so we believe the word of God is essential. Everything we need to know to know, worship, and obey Jesus is in the word. We say it every single week. Could you imagine coming in one day, 20, 30 years from now, and someone gets up and says, oh, hey, we found in the back closet something we probably should be using. It was one of those old pew Bibles. That's what happened in the temple. How in the world did that get to that? And I've been convinced, and I am convinced, that we have been at great risk of losing the Bible in the church for a while now even though we have them at great accessibility. And I think what Jesus mourns here with these disciples is that they had lost the Bible. They had missed the law. They had missed an understanding of who Jesus was from Old Testament to New Testament. Listen, there's a way that we can lose the Bible and still have it on our shelves. Like There's a way that we can lose the Bible and still be very accessible. And I, and I have two major ways that I think that that happens. If you're taking notes, here's two major ways. One, we become susceptible to losing the Bible when we underuse it. We become susceptible to losing the Bible when we underuse it. Or another way to put that is we tend to forget the things we neglect. We tend to forget the things we neglect. Or we're slow to believe what we don't understand, and we don't understand what we refuse to read. <laughs> so why is it the disciples did not understand that Jesus was who he said he was? It's not necessarily because God was unwilling or trying to hide their eyes, although that did happen sometimes in the New Testament. These disciples didn't understand because of their own unbelief, because they didn't understand that which they did not read. Now I want to ask these questions, and these questions are not meant to be condemning, more just self-assessment, especially for leaders of households. If you don't have the Bible as central, who makes the rules in your household? Like if you don't have the Bible, who's making the rules? How do you make decisions without the word? Is it just kind of like this? Wherever the wind's taking me this week. Are the scriptures revered and held in honor and esteem at your dinner table? You know? Are we teaching the scriptures to our children as more than moral stories, but as truths upon which they can hang their entire life? Now, this is not just me saying this from a pastoral perspective, coming heavy-handedly. This is a call that God gives his people. If we do not do those things, we are at great risk of losing the scriptures that we neglect. But there's a second way that you can lose the Bible in the midst of the church, and it is this. We become susceptible to losing the Bible when we misuse it. So we can underuse it, or we could misuse it. Misuse is a dangerous evil because it masquerades as still using the Bible. <laughs> Does that make sense? 
It masquerades as true use of the Bible because you're you know, quoting scripture or whatever. You could see this pretty prevalently. It's when we quote scriptures out of context or we want them to mean whatever we want them to mean. I want you to remember every time you find Satan tempting Jesus in the wilderness, tempting Adam and Eve, he uses the word of God, but he twists and misuses it. And that is very dangerous, is it not? Because it sounds right. But the Proverbs say there's a way that seems right to man and in the end leads to destruction. And this is what Satan does. So how do we misuse it? Well, a couple thoughts. Number one, the Bible is not a, primarily a document of rules and creeds. It's not. The Bible is not a bludgeon to beat people up with or a weapon to fend off disagreement and dissenters. The Bible is not a spell book full of charms that we can recite to gain favor from a heavenly dispenser of goods. <laughs> if we just quote this, then maybe we won't be sick. Or if we just quote that, then maybe we'll get a job. If we quote this, maybe our bank account will increase. This is not how it works. This is not like Harry Potter on, you know, Christian ease, you know. That doesn't work. The Bible's not a children's narrative that we appreciate but refrain from taking too seriously, you know. It's not like Hook with Robin Williams. It's like, oh, there's some good things in there, but ultimately we don't hang our life on it. That's not it. The Bible's not merely a historical account that can be approached by only scholars. The Bible's not an authoritarian tool to be used by the religious elite to exercise undue or unhealthy authority over others for shameful gain, the Bible isn't for those things. And when you misuse the Bible for those things, it gets twisted. No, the Bible is a holy and sacred collection of text written by multiple human authors under the inspiration of one author, the Holy Spirit. The Bible is a book with multiple authors, and each author articulates the story of one true God a God of grace, a God of compassion, intervening in the lives of broken and hostile sinners to do good to them, even when they are intent on doing harm to themselves and everyone else. That's what the Bible is. Most importantly, and this is what Jesus does here, the Bible's a book that points to the hope of humanity, and from start to finish, the Bible's a book about Jesus. Genesis to Revelation the Bible's a book about Jesus Christ. When Jesus walks on the seven-mile road to Emmaus with these disciples, he tells them and mourns over the fact that they don't understand the Scriptures. And then the Scriptures say that he shows them how all the Scriptures point to him. Or to quote exactly what the Bible says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interprets to them how in all the Scriptures the things that are concerning himself. Now, if you say Moses, you're probably thinking, well, Moses is not the start of the Bible. The start of the Bible is Adam. That's true, but guess who wrote the first book of the Bible? Moses. So when Jesus starts with Moses and points to himself, he's starting with Genesis 1, and he's going all the way to the end of Malachi and saying, see, this is where I'm at in all of this. Now, I want you guys to be in awe for a second. He does this on a seven-mile walk. Could you imagine this? I've devoted my entire life to ministry, and I haven't even gotten like the first iota of doing this. Jesus does this in seven miles. He's like, well, let me help you out here. It's, pro it's probably the best inductive Bible study there has ever been. And who knows when he even started talking about himself. Jesus typically listens to people for a very long time. They probably rattled on about the things they thought they knew. And then three and a half miles in, Jesus goes, well, you guys are foolish, but it's okay. I still love you. Let me show you. You see, the Bible is this glorious book about God's unrelenting love for us, and it's always heralding the truth that there's a coming Messiah, there's a coming King. I want to encourage you Christians, don't be ashamed of the Bible. Don't be ashamed of the Bible. I am so astounded how often I find myself being coerced or feeling coerced to be ashamed of the Bible in our culture, and it's just garbage. On what grounds are you ashamed of the Bible? 
I would like to cordially refuse to be lectured about the authenticity of the Bible in an age of complete insincerity and manipulative deception. I don't like to be lectured in the midst of a culture that can't tell one truth about what's true. The Bible is nothing to be ashamed of. The Bible is something that we ought to hang our lives upon. And if you think that you're hanging your life upon something that is less reliable than all of the other alternatives, I beg to differ. And I'll have that conversation at any point, at any moment. Because what you're hanging your life on is something. And I promise you, that something is not as secure as the very thing that's in your hand right now. The Bible is the very word of God. There's a story. So I just wanted to tell you one story in the hopes that maybe this spurs what the disciples were feeling, that burning of your hearts. So you get the story of Jesus' birth. And in the book of Matthew, I believe, it says that Jesus is born in Bethlehem. And that the wise men, the magi, show up to Jesus' manger, and they followed a star in the east. And they asked the people, where is he that is born king of the Jews? It says in the Bible, in the book of Matthew, that King Herod heard of this, and he was very angry. Why? Because Herod was called the king of the Jews, and he was angry that there would be anyone else that would be called the king of the Jews. And so what does Herod do? It says that he tells them, hey, why don't you go ahead and go worship? I'd like to worship too. Just let me know where he is. Of course... He really wanted to put Jesus to death. And so whenever the the wise men don't come back and report to him, he's so angry, it says that he kills every every male child two years old and younger, murders them. The Bible records that this is Herod's way of trying to wipe out. Instead, Jesus and his parents, they get away. Jesus is not killed in this massacre. Now, when you read that story, it's like, wow, that's powerful, that's intense, that's Okay, there's so many things we could take from the Old Testament. But there's, there's something looming here that's a much greater story than just a prophecy out of the book of Micah, chapter 5, about Bethlehem. And that is, what other story are you, is that familiarizing you with? Oh, well, thousands of years before that, there was a, guy, a little child that was born named Moses. And this child was promised that he would be a redeemer of the people. There was going to be this kid who was going to be born. Only problem is, Pharaoh heard about this and was terrified. He was the king of the Jews. He had them as enslaved. And so what did he do? Pharaoh said, I want all of the babies, male born, two years old and younger, to be murdered. But what happens? They don't get Moses. You guys remember this, right? The little baby on the Nile. And instead, what ends up happening? The child ends up being raised in the palace as a prince. And in case you're not seeing just how incredible it is that there's such a crossover between Old and New Testaments, guess what the Bible records that Jesus and his parents, how did they escape? Where did they go? Egypt. (laughs) And then it says, so that the scripture would be fulfilled, out of Egypt I have called my son. See, Moses was not the Messiah, but his entire story of bringing the children of Israel out of slavery and into the promised land was pointing to the one who would be born, Jesus. And I can go on. This is just one. And honestly, it's just scratching the surface. The Bible is a congruent book pointing to Jesus and what he would have to suffer, what he would have to go through in order to win for us freedom from our slavery to sin. And Jesus wants them to know this. Now, what I love here is after it it says he does this, it says they get to the town and that Jesus pretends like he has to go further. I love that, just because Jesus is just acting. He's like, all right, guys, i got to keep going. But he's going to go do more stuff. And it says that they urge him, please stay with us. What I love about this part of the story is the personal, intimate love of Christ is that he's willing to be persuaded by mere 
mortal disciples to have dinner. Okay, I'll hang out with you. He has dinner with them, and it says that he's revealed in what? In the breaking of bread. He breaks the bread, and boom, they realize, oh my gosh, it's him. Best part is that as soon as they recognize it's him, he disappears from their sight. Now, why is that the best part to me? There's many reasons. One, it's just because of the coyness of Jesus. But the second is because he did to them exactly what he did to the women. And now they have to go and they have to be put in the place of all the women. And they have to go say, we saw him. And then they're going to be like, well, where is he? And they're going to have to go, well, it's just like what Mary said. Same story. He's putting them in that predicament where they have to admit that they were wrong. But I love that he does it also because it's still true for us today that Jesus reveals himself in the breaking of bread with us. It's why every single week we take communion together. Why do we do that? Well, one, because Jesus commands it, right? He says, every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. It's also a redramatization of the gospel. So each week we preach the Bible, but we say, what's the center of the Bible? It's the, it's the bread and the wine. Why? Because that represents Christ, the shed blood of Christ, the broken body of Christ. And there's a, a revealing of himself, that Christ reveals himself through the breaking of bread and, and the wine. But there's another piece to this. Is what does the Bible say about itself? What does the Bible record that the word is? Jesus calls it food that you know not of or daily bread. And that there's a, there's a brokenness to Christ's life, the living word. He is broken for us. But that Christ still reveals himself to us in his word every time we open it. Every time you crack open this book, Christ reveals himself. He's willing to reveal himself to us. And I hate that the, the church has, be, has developed this kind of uh, spirit versus word, spirit versus Bible. It's total garbage. If you have the Bible without the spirit, you have a Pharisee. If you have the spirit without the Bible, you have a mystic or a pagan. You must have the Bible and the spirit. These, thing, these two ride together. They're as clicked up as anyone has ever been clicked up. That, the spirit and the Bible, okay? They're together. If you read the Bible and the Holy Spirit does not help, you're just merely, you might as well read Sports Illustrated. <laughs> but if you try to follow Jesus and you don't have the Bible and you're just relying upon the Spirit, let me, let me warn you, there are many spirits in this world. And they don't all lead you to Jesus. My prayer for us is that our hearts would also burn within us when Jesus opens to us the Scriptures. I'll close with this thought, and it's a thought that I got actually from Ravi Zacharias, a brother who, find, who went home to be with the Lord Jesus. But I thought it appropriate to use this. He's an apologist. If you don't know Ravi's ministry, I want to encourage you. You should check it out. But he went home to be with the Lord Jesus this last week after battling cancer. And I found this thought from him about the road to Emmaus. And he says, there's two disciples. One is named and one is not named. One's named Cleopas. He said, Maybe perhaps Cleopas was with his wife, who's mentioned later in the New Testament, which we don't know this, but perhaps he was. And perhaps it's husband and wife that are journeying together. And Jesus reveals himself to them along the way and begins to open the scriptures. And Ravi goes on to say, in Genesis, Adam and Eve also had their eyes opened whenever they ate of the tree. He said, but instead of experiencing hope and healing, they found themselves face to face with their own shame and guilt. They were met not with the hope of the resurrection, but they were, their eyes were open to the certainty of death. That ultimately when our first parents ate of the bread of unbelief, their eyes were opened in the worst possible way. But then Christ on the road to Emmaus is with a couple again. And instead, like the serpent, when he offers food, Jesus offers the bread of belief. He catches up with this couple. 
And he offers to them what Satan had stole, stolen from them. And as they eat, their eyes are opened to who Christ really is. Ravi goes on to say that all of us are on a road to Emmaus with our backs turned to the celestial city, Jerusalem. And Jesus meets us on the way and turns us back to the city of God and says, here's the way again. And he leaves us with a question. Do your hearts not burn within you as Christ opens the scriptures to you? Brothers, sisters, are we valuing God's word as precious to us as a treasure? Non-Christian, is he calling you, opening the eyes of your hearts to see him as he truly is, not as others have painted him to be, but as the Christ, the son of the living God. So my prayers as we take again of the bread and of the juice or of the wine this morning, that your hearts would burn where they need to run to Jesus and in doing so you would run to his word. And that you would experience what these disciples experience, which is Christ, the true Messiah. If you'll stand to your feet, I'll pray for us. Thank you, Jesus, that you always meet us on the road of life, even when our backs have been turned to where you are and where you're leading us. You have a gracious and tender way of turning our eyes back to you. God, turn our eyes to the heavenly Jerusalem. Set our feet upon a path. You are the way. You are the truth. You are the life. There is no way to that city. There is no way to the Father but through you. Jesus, in a society that wants to degradate and erode the truths of Scripture at every turn, we ask you, would you give us a confidence in your word Would you take away any misplaced shame in the Bible and instead give us a hunger again to dive into your word? There is no book like this book, Lord. Please give us what we cannot have apart from you. Have our hearts burn within us to run to this book. Not for the words on the page, but to meet you, the living word. Holy Spirit, we invite you. Forgive us where we have been trite. And as we sing... Let us sing in spirit and in truth. Worship to your name, my King. And it's in Jesus' name that we do pray it. Amen. <laughs>